This is Resident 24.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How you doing? I'm Nick Hennigan and welcome to another slice of Literary London where we talk about things, well, you know, literary and London-y. Yes, it's all in the name, isn't it? How are you? How have you been? I've had an interesting uh, week. I've been asked by someone to look at adapting a book, possibly for a television series. Oh, yes, I have. We've also started on BohemianBritain.com, five minutes to the Edinburgh Festival. If you're thinking of taking a show to the Edinburgh Festival, go to BohemianBritain.com. Uh, and I'm going to do one or two a week, and it's only five minutes. just talks about the basics of going to the Edinburgh Festival. So I thought I'd just throw that one out there. But talking of adapting series, I had a fascinating night uh, this week <clears throat> at a place called the House, the House of St Barnabas, which is in Soho. It's a number one Greek street, just on the corner of Soho Square. Um, and it's a brilliant place because it's actually a private members club. But it's a private members club that also is a registered charity and does a lot to help, uh, amongst others, homeless people um i think and i'm not sure if it's anecdotal but quite a lot of few people who work there have been have had problems before um but and it's a beautiful club it's a brilliant old place i think the fact that they've still got the chapel there means that um perhaps the reason the club is um sort of not for profit and uh, a charity as well of course is is perhaps due to the fact of its formation but um it's a great place and if you get a chance to go in there do they also host art exhibitions and i think i might actually join as a member i might have to do it it's near trisha's five pounds a year trisha's but anyway i won't i won't go down that road because um it was a fantastic night and i went due to an organization called the sanford st martin trust now, I mentioned that I've been asked to look at um, a book, a children's book, a coming-of-age book, to turn into a television series. I think it was serendipity, or perhaps God telling me something. Hmm? And I was at the House of St. Barnabas in the chapel. You're not allowed to take your drinks in. But apart from that, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I'll put a picture up on uh, bohemianbritain.com. Uh, I took some photos. Um, with Heidi Thomas. Now, the writer Heidi Thomas, you may have heard of her. She is a screenwriter um, and probably most famous now for adapting the BBC hit Call the Midwife. Call the Midwife has been going for years. Uh, it's uh, screened all over the world. Um, and I was quite chuffed to be able to meet Heidi. Um, so chuffed, in fact, I asked a question, which you'll hear later on. I also bumped into Torin Douglas, which is always a pleasure. Torin Douglas, uh, ex-BBC correspondent, um, writes about media, perhaps most famous in West London for being the driving force behind the Chiswick Book Festival, which is going to kick off again in the autumn, and uh, I should be there for that. But I thought what I'd do, uh, we recorded, I didn't record it, actually, they recorded the session with Heidi Thomas. And if you're a writer, uh, she comes out with some brilliant um, tips. And I found it fascinating. Um, but I thought what I'd do is I'd just play it for you. So I asked the very nice people if they'd send me the audio recording. And they have done. And uh, I'm going to play it in its entirety over this time and probably next time. Although you'll be able to hear it all on bohemianbritain.com. Um... And I'll let Anna McEnany, who I think is uh, one of the directors of the Sanford St. Martin's Trust, tell you all about the evening we had. Here she is. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Anna McNamee. I'm a broadcast journalist, and I am the executive director of the Sanford St. Martin Trust. And it is my very great honor to be welcoming you here this evening for a very special media salon. 
I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest in a moment. Before that, though, we have some bits of business to get through. Uh, one of those is to say thank you to the House of St. Barnabas, who are lending us this beautiful chapel and allowing us to be here tonight. And the other thing I need to do is tell you a bit about the Sanford St. Martin Trust. If you don't already know us or know our work, basically what we are concerned with is promoting a better understanding of religion and belief through broadcasting, television in particular tonight. And we also run an award ceremony. Our guest tonight, in fact, is the winner of one of those awards, which is why we are so lucky to have her here. Now, a Sanford St. Martin Media Salon is based on the idea of participation. So I have a load of questions, which I am dying to ask. But I suspect that some of you might have some questions also. And so we will be making time for you to, to say that. Jess has got a microphone, she'll come and see you. And you can ask a question, make a comment, share an observation, tell us a story. You can do a song and dance if you like. Nobody will, nobody will mind. Now that all the boring business stuff is done, I hope you'll help me welcome, well, you know, really, I think somebody who is a superwoman of British screenwriting, the creative mind behind the TV adaptations of classic books like Cranford, Little Women, and I Capture the Castle, as well as the original drama Lilies and the reprisal of Upstairs, Downstairs, but also of one of the BBC's most successful TV series ever, called Midway. This is Heidi Thomas. Heidi, thank you very, very much for coming. It's we, a pleasure. Uh, <laughs> it's been just over three months, hasn't it, since the actual end of Series 11 on TV. Now, if you haven't seen it, I warn you, there are going to be spoilers. Uh, but, I mean, it was, you know, again, dominated the weekly viewing figures. In the United States, it's been even more recently gone out, and it completely slaughtered the viewing figures there as well. It must be an awful lot of pressure to be so successful. Is it daunting? Yes, it is. well, it's daunting every year. After the Christmas special goes out, I sit down with a glass of Baileys and I think, now I've got to do it all again. And it is very, very daunting because at the point where I start storylining a series from scratch again, you know, you talk about the writer and the blank page. For me, it's a blank computer screen because I write directly onto my laptop. At the same point when I'm about to begin that, the finished series is starting to screen. So you're looking on screen at eighth draft scripts with polished performances, beautiful sets and costumes. The, even the music is on and it's beautifully edited. And I've just got this kind of raw spaghetti that I've just got to try and turn into something. The spaghetti being my ideas and the gourmet meal at the far end of the tunnel being the thing I aim towards. So I think daunting is a very good word and I don't think I would work so hard or be so focused if I found it easy. I uh, know, see that's interesting because you've actually confirmed something that I wondered because I rather imagined in my head that basically have, writing a series is a bit like giving birth again and, and by which count, you know. What? Oh no, 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 because I've given birth and it only took a day. <laughs> The product is actually sitting over there. My son's here this evening. No, no, it's, it's giving birth is so much easier than, than writing 103 episodes of a television series. I was going to say, and yet you have 13. I'd always rather have him, of course, of course, than, than my success. But yeah, it's t it can be very tough, and it's, it's a slog. You know, I'd be fibbing if I said it wasn't a slog. But presumably, you didn't actually plan for it to be going on this long, did you? I mean, we, we're now, what, it's, you started in 1957, so to speak. The mm -hmm. series one. We're now all the way up to 
66, 67? Yes, well, I, the Christmas special that we've, we literally finished filming it today, that's Christmas 1967, so the next series, series 12, is set in 68. So we've spanned over a decade in historic terms as well as TV terms. You couldn't have planned that. No, no, I probably wouldn't have signed up for it if I'd known. Um, because when we began, you see, it was a six-part series. Now we do eight episodes each year and a 90-minute Christmas special. But it was a six-part drama series based very distinctly on a trilogy of memoirs. So we had plenty of raw material. And I think we presumed that that might be it. It would be just a lovely standalone gift to the TV watching community that we were all very proud of and had put our best work into. But we did think it would be, we, would have, we felt we'd be surprised if a second series was commissioned, and it was. But of course, we'd used most of the material from the book. So from series two onwards, we were having to create new material. And it was really as it unfolded year after year, every year, with my glass of Baileys, I go into the electronic archives, and I'm like, oh, this happened. There was a leprosy patient. There was an epidemic. There was mini skirts, you know, and you, you just don't run out of material. So we've always rolled forward year by year. And I think when you look down the mountain, you do realize what a lot we've done. Mm. You, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the original books by Jennifer Worth, the, mm -hmm. the midwife, and her memoirs. And I think what lasted you about one and a half series, didn't it, the actual yes, material yes. in the book? Um, what was it about the books that appealed to you? I mean, you must get sent loads of things, being a very successful mm. screenwriter, mm. having done loads of adaptations, you must get sent a lot of material. Mm. What was it that made that book stand out? What was interesting was I just, it, I was approached in 2007, that's how long ago it was that I made my first acquaintance with the material, and I'd just done Cranford, Cranford and The Return to Cranford, so it was a two-series thing, really. But I was looking for another Cranford, and I believe that in looking for another Cranford, I had to locate a, a Victorian novel that was in the classic, classic canon and that had rectitude and literary worth. So I was sent this book with a picture of urchins on the front, and it was paperback, and I was like, this isn't Cranford, this isn't the new Cranford. And I say that entirely against myself, because don't judge a book by its cover. And when I started to read it, I remember specifically getting to page, I was only reading it out of politeness to the producer. I got to page 17, and it was like this, you know in Jaws where they see the shark, and there's like that focus pull, I thought, oh, it was magical. It drew me in in a way few books had ever drawn me in before, with the exception perhaps of Dickens, who will always make me cry or laugh. Elizabeth Gaskell, I think, with Cranford, mm. did the same thing. But what I realised was the magic of Cranford, for me as a dramatist as, and as an adapter, wasn't its literary heritage or its literary worth, both of which are considerable. It was the fact that it was a memoir. It was fragmentary. It was deeply felt. It was small scale. And you could, there might be a chapter in Cranford that would give you a few beautiful scenes, or there might be a paragraph that could give you a whole hour of drama. And Call the Midwife was like that. It's, it was Jennifer Worth's first and only book, as it turned out. But it was full of things that I could inflate or compress or reinterpret. And as an adaptrice of fiction um, or history, that's what I like to do. So I realized it spoke to me as a woman and a human being and a reader, but also as a craftswoman. See, now that is very interesting because I did wonder, because, you know, a novel, of course, has plot. It's driven by plot, really. Mm -hmm. And a memoir really isn't, you know, well, I, except for the person whose memoir it is. I, mean, I yes. suppose that they have a plot. But it's, it, 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 it must be, 
it, it must be, how, where, how do you find the storyline? How do you find the thread? I think for me, I operate very much by instinct. I believe that what draws me in, I can put back out there and draw other people in. And so I suppose, in a way, it's, it's hoping that you have friends out there who will look at things the way you do. There is always an arc, and if you're writing for television, you have to break that arc down into a series of one-hour episodes, or perhaps, if you're doing a feature, 90 minutes. And those formats, if you, it's a very reductive word that I don't like to use, but if you, if you invest the piece into that format, it gives you a basic shape and structure that you can then start to hang scenes and characters and personalities on. The thing I particularly look out for in drama, um, for drama when I'm reading a book, is dialogue and language. And I like that it be just enough for me to use as a seed, and that was very much the case in Cranford. And also the case in Call the Midwife. There were wonderful lines and fragments of dialogue, but there was still room for me to get in there with my spade and dig. So it's about finding that balance. And for every adaptation I've ever taken on, I like to immerse myself in the ephemera of the period, whether that is literal ephemera like magazines and advertisements, or reading the version of the Bible that those characters would have read, which is almost invariably the King James for the kind of things I adapt. It's interesting about the ephemera, because it, that is one of the things that I, I, I love about watching it, is there are always these tiny, almost almost throwaway bits. There's, I remember there's one point where Trixie is using a... Um, they all seem to have to do a Trixie one, I think, but uh, she's using a lady shape. Oh, the Phyllis lady shape. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was, I remember there being mm. one in the bathroom cupboard when I was growing up. Mm. Mysterious device that exactly. you'd go and look at with your friends and say, do you know what that's for? Yes. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Or the way that she smokes Sobrani cigarettes. Oh, yes. Again, you know, I, you know, all mm. these the tiny, tiny, tiny little things. Well, that actually came from something, and this is the way I collect dramatic detail. When I was young, my mum had had as a 21st birthday present from her parents a jeweled cigarette case with her initials on and a lighter also jeweled with her initials on and she said oh no and I always match my cigarettes to my frock how do you even do that? But you could buy these Sobrani cocktails yes. and they come in beautiful. They're very, beautiful. I've never smoked. I have a phobia of silky paper. I've never even touched, a, other than touching a cigarette and recoiling. But they come in beautiful, sort of what you would call sweet pea shades. And my yes. mum wore blues and lilacs and she always matched her cigarettes to her front. My mother-in-law did the exact same yeah. thing. I mean, it, she always looked an absolute picture, I have to say, but it, you know, yeah. yes. And I, I do that now. Mm -hmm. As I was born in 1962 mm -hmm. and as time has gone on in called Midwife, I'm using little tidbits from my own life, like in the Christmas special we've just had, and I know people in this room may well understand this, I put a spirograph in. Do you remember a spirograph? <laughs> and I always have to ring the art department and say, can you get hold of a Phyllis Lady shape or a spirograph? And they said, we've got a spirograph. And Dr. Turner's three children are shown a spirograph. They do not know what to do with it. <laughs> and so you realize there comes a point where it's there entirely for my benefit and yours as well. You'll see the spirograph. The, the kids are like, what are these strange bits of plastic? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that's just for fun. And I think it's the, the real bones of the series are actual history, actual you know, medical developments and things. The rest is, is just the cherry on the cake, really. So how far ahead do you plan that? I take it year by year, quite literally, partly because I'm just not very well organised. Um, but I do remember thalidomide, for example. That was mm. series five. Mm. And I'd always wanted to cover thalidomide. Um, I am exactly of the same age as people who were injured by that drug. So I remembered growing up, and again, part of my own experience, I suppose, seeing children with anomalous arms and legs 
the swings, you know, at the beach. And I really wanted to delve into that and tell that story. But the fact that thalidomide was causing these anomalies was not discovered until December 1961. So I knew we couldn't cover it until Series 5. So that's a fairly rare example of me looking ahead and thinking, if we get as far as Series 5, that is what is going to form the backbone of that series. But every year, usually in about January, uh, December, January, I go into the Wellcome Trust archives and read the medical reports for Poplar, or now Tower Hamlets. Um, they're filed away. They're the driest facts you can possibly imagine. I have a friend, Jess, here, who's a, an archivist from the National Archive in Kew, and she encourages me in these pursuits. But you can look at these columns of figures, and I'm not a figures person at all, but as you learn to read them, you see, oh, there was a lot of measles that year. Measles undulates. You without randomly and then you start to notice there are very few cases of diabetes but you've got a lot of venous ulcers which means there's undiagnosed diabetes and then that will change over time so I'm thinking what's happening here that suddenly you know the venous ulcer cases are going down are they discovering the link to diabetes no they're setting up independent ulcer clinics and you get little narrative stories and tidbits as well so I always go there first and then that gives me a lot of things which will be specific to that year. Um, you know, has there been vaccination trials or the beginning of cervical smear testing, for example? Mm -hmm. And then I go and read the British newspaper archives, which gives me something completely different, which is far from being about medical statistics. It tells you the weird places babies were born, like in, in, in a grocery shop or on a bus and things like that. And so that gives you a bit of colour. And you'll find out what the fashions were or what the national preoccupations were. So I do those alongside one another, but always a year at a time, because I think as humans, we live a year at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're not... I don't like to write with... Um, with great hindsight. So that's another thing I always try to avoid doing because you can't have people saying, oh, yes, but one day we will have a cure for this disease because nobody would know that, you know, the huge advances in cancer treatment, for example, in the past 20 or 30 years, never mind the, the last 50. So I'm always very careful to sit within the year that I'm writing about and try not to look too far ahead. That really that explains quite a lot of it, because in many respects, I, I think of Midwife as being a medical drama. I mean, there is so much medicine mm. in there, but there's a lot of social history as well. I mean, it is, it is you know, at, the, at least 90% of the appeal, I think, is the fact that it is, it's happening in a, in a community. You feel, you feel the space, you feel the people. It's, it's so multidimensional. How do you find out all those things? You can't go to the Wellcome Trust, presumably, or can mm. No, I listen to people. It's when you talk to people who were alive at that time, whether they were young mothers giving birth. You know, my mum gave birth to me, 62, and two children subsequently. And when she, uh, she's passed away now, but when she was poorly, I went home for six months, for her last six months. And one of the things that was actually a real blessing about that time was she would have visitors every single day. And she was more or less bedridden towards the end, but she would say, it's Marion today, you'll need the diabetic cake. So I'd be sort of, you know, catering for these old ladies. But just as when I was a child, I'd have one ear cocked for the things they were talking about. And they would talk about their experiences as young women, things like they, they couldn't have a checkbook without their husband's permission. They couldn't take on higher purchase agreements. So being alert to and loving and respecting the women of my mother's generation has given me an enormous amount of context. And um, I, would never, I would never sort of underestimate the benefit that that has been to me as a dramatist, but also to me as a woman. I think these stories are important to tell. And they, Call the Midwife is one of the few programs 
I believe and I hope that treats those sort of stories with respect and sees small lives as being of great value. I genuinely believe that a small, ordinary life can be filled with the most enormous things. And I grew up in a suburban cul-de-sac and every house was packed with secrets like wheat in a barn, you know, and you'd, years later I'm finding things out about so-and-so at number 37, and it was all going on under my nose. But I was quite a liminal child. I, I liked to be on the outside edge, watching people, listening to people. Um, and that's how I started, I think, to receive the world as a storyteller. As people think storytelling is about giving out, but in the first instance, it's always about receiving. So do you find then that what you've ended up doing is, is basically, are your characters based on people you know? That's a dangerous question. Well, it's an extremely dangerous question because I have old friends, particularly, who will say to me, oh, I know where you got that from. And I'm like, do you? And I feel very seen because sometimes it's not conscious. It might just be a line or a fragment of something. Equally, it might be um, some, something, someone's come up to me and whispered their story to me. I mean, I hear the most terrible childbirth stories. No wonder I only had one <laughs> child. But yeah. people yeah. will come and, yes. and testify to their physical experiences. But no, I think it is just about believing that everybody has a story to tell. And sometimes little elements of real life stories I will impose onto a fictional character. Hmm. I wondered a little bit because um, I, I knew quite a lot, I grew up Catholic and I knew quite a lot of nuns. Um, <laughs> I have to say more Mother Mildred than Sister Julian, mm -hmm. frankly. Um, but like, they're, they're quite nice, your nuns, aren't they? Well, I think it's an interesting thing because they're certainly characters and they're strong people. I grew up Anglican, and so, but my father was Roman Catholic, so I knew a lot of Roman Catholic nuns. And I never met any that were horrible, but then I, I was never subject to discipline from Roman Catholic nuns, for example. And I do know there have been quite a variety of experiences of people who, who had authority handed down to them from a religious position, perhaps at school or in an orphanage, perhaps. And I would never decry that experience. But what I very much wanted with Call the Midwife is I saw an opportunity, just taking the, the text and the texture of the book, to show people of faith leading lives that were not going to be, in my hands, the subject of ridicule or to be othered. The, when I met the Anglican nuns upon whom the fictional order of St. Raymond Nonatus is based. What struck me was these were extremely bright women who'd made a very positive and definite choice, not necessarily at a particularly young age, um, but they believed in what they were doing. They had a commitment to their choice in life and they were serving other people in a very pragmatic, earthbound way. You don't get more earthy or human than the messy business of childbirth. And yet to be fueled in your dedication to that by religious faith, I find admirable and fascinating. And I didn't ever want, yes, my, my nuns, Monica Joan, Sister Julianne, they can be funny and they can be quirky because people are funny and quirky. But I will never laugh at their faith because I think there's quite enough of that in broadcast, you know, I mean, I love Father mm. Ted, for example, it's hilarious. And that chimes a lot with time I spent in Ireland as a child and my Catholic neighbors growing up. Mm -hmm. My father's religious practice, I, I think it's wonderful, but called midwife is about something else. It is, it is interesting though, isn't it? Because like I said, I mean, they are very nice nuns, I have to say, and, and you know, probably the nuns, 
that I knew were nice also. They just didn't feel like it when I was six. Anyways, but having said that, um, I, it, it does seem to me that you've, you've used that as a starting point to create, almost by stealth, I think, what is an incredible manifesto for a way of living, for, a way, for an idea about compassion and charity and kindness. And one of the things I've always noticed about Midwife is characters are very good at saying sorry, mm. um, which is not my experience in real life. Um, but this is, where does that come from? I mean, does that come from the way that you were brought up? You're, not from your experience of nuns. No, I think, I think there is nothing wrong in goodness. And that's quite a, that makes me sometimes feel like rather a contrarian in the modern world. I believe there are many, many shades of goodness. Um, just as there are, you know when you look at a painting and it's white, and it might be clouds in a sky or a white dress on a girl, you think, oh yes, white sky, white dress. And then you think, oh no, the painter has, there's innumerable shades of grey in here or splashes of yellow. And to me, that's what goodness is. It's an overall impression brought about by very complex emotions and the exchange of complex emotions. I find goodness fascinating. And a lot of modern drama is predicated on finding evil fascinating. And I think there is a place for that kind of drama in the world. I love true crime. You know, I like it more than I like false crime. I don't, I don't know why. Probably says something about... My, my fascination with human psychology. But what is wrong with goodness? I don't understand why people presume that goodness is somehow flimsy or that virtue is dismissible. All of these things are the building blocks of effective lives. And I think everybody, however cynical, will notice when they are touched by the compassion of others or when they feel it themselves. It's the better part of human nature. It's not the dominant part. And I often feel in modern society, it's not the most valued part. And I think that's perhaps why over the years, Call the Midwife has been dismissed as a sort of, as a Horlicks program because our, our engine is love. It's a series about what love can do. And that's often about what love can do in very unpromising circumstances, or what love can do when challenged, or what love can do when let down. But ultimately, if I'm stuck on a script, I'll always think, what, from what direction can the love come? How can we emerge from this with, with a degree of hope? Because we often tell stories that, that are dark or painful, or where you see people at risk of being lost. But somehow, there is always a note of hope in there because I believe there is a note of hope in this, you know, in the world that we inhabit. Hmm. I think it's time to, to allow some of our audience to give us a bit of love, or give you a bit of love anyways. I don't know if anybody has any questions um, that they'd like to ask. If you raise your hand, um, Jess has a, oh, there we go. Jess has a microphone and she'll come round. Hello. Um, it's not a question, it's just a thank you. We, we represent the British Nuclear Test Veterans. Oh, do And you? your story brought it to mainstream, and you were brave enough to tell the story. So oh. we just wanted to say thank you for that. Well, I would just like to say thank you to your organisation for being so generous and in advising us and, and helping us with material. Um, I don't know if people saw this episode. It's actually two episodes about one couple. Um, and the... the husband, the father of an unborn child, has, has been affected by exposure to radiation. And you know, it was something that I myself only found out about because there's a gentleman 
I know from the Cambridge community, our local community, who he's elderly and I, he has a sight problem. And I noticed he always wears a little badge. And when I got close one day and saw it, he wears a nuclear test veteran's badge. And finding a little bit more out about him, he's suffering greatly from vision problems. And he and his wife were never able to have children together. And that really shocked me because I was, you know, the way we all have vague peripheral knowledge of 20th century British history. I wasn't aware of how devastating those, that damage was. And I really felt this is called Midwife is the perfect place to tell this story. So thank you to your community, because once we reached out and asked for more information, we, we couldn't have asked for better support. So thank you. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? There was another question that... <clears throat> I asked. But you'll have to wait till next time to hear that. Oh, what a tease I am. That was Heidi Thomas of, uh, well, you know, screenwriter Heidi Thomas, probably most famous for Call the Midwife. Uh, we were at the house of St. Barnabas, Greek Street in Soho, for a Samford St. Martin's Trust uh, media salon. And fascinating it was. And there's more fascinating stuff to come, which I shall play for you next time. There'll be a part two of uh, Heidi Thomas, so I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, if you've got an event happening, then drop me a line, radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. It's probably the easiest address. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. And uh, I'll see you next time. Hey, keep smiling, kids. I love you all. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM.